This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Star Trek that coined the term final frontier to describe space. But can you think of a more apt description? Clearly, more so than any place on Earth, just looking up and getting filled with that sense of wonder about what's beyond and how it's changing in the future, that really is the next frontier. And one of the things that we've seen in recent years is it seems like there has been a dramatic fast-tracking of exploration into the final frontier space. And every two weeks, we have the opportunity to change the format of this program from being the other side of midnight to the infinite side of midnight and chatting with a man who not only has one of the best voices in all of radio, who not only has an incredible variety and body of knowledge that he's able to explain in simple terms that even people like me can understand, but he's able to give me a lot of answers which have helped me in a lot of astronomy categories on Jeopardy. Additionally, he's done something with not just me, but I hear this from people that write to me every week, every two weeks that I think is even more impressive, which he has instilled a sense of curiosity about all of the subjects that he talks about in the minds of everybody who listens. By now, you've probably guessed. I am very pleased to be joined once again by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space also, a terrific podcaster where you can listen to the Dr. Sky experience at uh, redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, I can't believe it's been two weeks already. It's great to talk well, with you again. Good to be with you, Frank. I'm ready to launch here on the infinite side of midnight. Proud to be with you and the great listeners of your show. What does uh, Dr. Sky do with a Memorial Day weekend, Steve? Well, it's interesting for some of the other things I do around the country. One of them people do know is with Coast to Coast. We were asked to be up in uh, Oregon to a beautiful historic uh, theater called the Granada Theater up there in the Dells. Beautiful area, that whole, you know, gorge, they call it, the Columbia River Gorge. I don't know, they must have had 800 people in that uh, particular auditorium, you know, celebrating some of the great things. I was on stage, and they had Travis Walton of the UFO Experience. Oh, so that was the UFO Fest, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, we would it's ju- not the big one. There's oh. another big one. I think that's called uh, Something in the Desert, uh, but that's not the one. But close enough. And then we also had Matt Moneymaker, who talks so much about the Bigfoot. And we actually, on the way to this beautiful place, uh, Matt had to stop off at the, uh, I didn't know there was such a thing. We had to stop at the Bigfoot Museum in Boring, Oregon, and pick up casts of the Bigfoot foot and feet that have been detected out there in the Pacific Northwest. It was a great time. That's how I spent my weekend. But a solemn remembrance of all. I was military, Army, for a short time in my life. And, of course, 
never too late just to have a experience here of sort of sharing a solemn Memorial Day. We don't like to say Happy Memorial Day because of the significance of it. But uh, how about you, Frank? How, how did you spend yours? Well, I uh, I did. I was actually on Saturday in Kingston, New York, and met um, the fella that you was a former pupil of yours. That's called into these radio segments from time to time. So I actually spent oh. a good portion of my Saturday hearing some very interesting Doctor Sky stories, which uh, <laughs> I will uh, because we're friends. I will keep them to myself. <laughs> Uh, from your youth. So thank you. I appreciate some good stuff. (laughs) All right. uh, A lot that I want to get to. Uh, Let me begin with what's going on with Virgin Galactic. You brought to our attention two weeks ago that Sir Richard Branson was sort of ramping things up again uh, when it comes to his uh, space program out of the three major private space sector endeavors, the Blue Origin and the uh, SpaceX you know, um, Virgin Galactic has always sort of been the third-party candidate there. It doesn't seem yes. to get as much of attention, doesn't seem to get as much media coverage. What's going on with Virgin Galactic? Well, here's a quick summary. They had launched their, and they, actually it's not really a launch, it's actually a deployment of what they call the spacecraft and spaceship Unity 25 just a few days ago. And that, of course, was all on board were members of the organization from Virgin, Virgin Galactic, including Sir Richard Branson. Now, this is a test flight that they're doing because they're going to be opening up the opportunity for people to go to space uh, as private tourists. And the average cost, they're saying, I mean, people have signed up. I think they're well booked into years from now, even though they've had some controversy. I think it's about almost a half a million dollars per seat, which is not in my budget lately. I don't know about yours. But what's interesting about these flights is they have a different way of doing this. They have spaceport in southern New Mexico, and they basically have uh, designed this most beautiful spaceport where they have a larger type uh, aircraft, if you want to call it that, in which the Unity 25 and this particular spacecraft uh, as it goes up and is dropped and deployed from an altitude, I think it's about 40,000, 50,000 feet up in the atmosphere, they drop it and the rocket motors fire. But the interesting thing about this is they've had some problems, as many people know, about doing this properly. And sadly, a number of years ago, they lost some people on one of their experimental flights. But it's kind of a very cool idea. You have to give them credit for this. And we haven't really heard so much about them. But Richard Branson has, of course, kind of bailed out, if that's a proper term, on one of their other projects, which was called Virgin Orbit. And they used one of these modified 70, uh, you know, 747s called Cosmic Girl, in which underneath, imagine seeing a commercial airliner-type aircraft like 747, and on the left side is this massive rocket. Mm. So they were going to use that from altitude to drop this particular rocket, firing it from the altitude where the 747 would fly. But unfortunately, that one's kind of been scrapped. So we wish, wish Richard Branson well. I mean, he's one of the first pioneers. We've been following this since the early days when I used to visit these space festivals in southern New Mexico for the SpaceX Prize. We started off with uh, Dr. Peter Diamantis. I think you've had him as a guest on the show many Mm -hmm. times, and people know him well. But for a long time, very simply, Frank, it seems like there was kind of not a lot of traction with Virgin Galactic. So we're hoping that uh, they can do this. It's a different type of deployment, unlike Bezos, which is a literal rocket launch, and, of course, things that uh, SpaceX is doing with uh, Elon Musk. So it's pretty exciting. Absolutely. uh, Let's hope they get it all right. And their spacecraft are called EVE and Unity. Those are the two spacecraft that would be dropped from altitude.
By the way, if people have questions at any point in this hour about space or anything regarding looking up, you can give uh, Dr. Sky a call at 1-800-848-9222. We had a different number last night, but the uh, back we're back with a conventional phone number today, 800-848-9222. We'll try and get to as many of your calls as we can throughout the hour. Hey, Supernova SN2023 IXF, uh, what is that? And... Uh, what, where, where is that looking for us at the moment? Well, supernova are interesting uh, in the universe, and we'll be brief here because of time. But one of these particular objects in a very distant galaxy, we call it the Messier 101 galaxy. The Earth term for the galaxy is called a pinwheel galaxy because it looks reminiscent like a pinwheel, as if you're looking straight down from 90 degrees down on this big galaxy. It's 21 million light years away from us, Frank. And what's interesting is a supernova exploded, in that particular galaxy, the brightest. Now, let's not all get too excited because I read, like we all do on the Internet, so many things about, oh, there's this beautiful strawberry moon coming and a supernova in the sky. Well, I'll guarantee you, if I was a betting man, you'll see the full moon. But this supernova is really for people who have meh, more advanced telescopes. But here's the point about it. It's interesting because we study these supernova even from the great distances that they are. And there are really two types of supernova. What is a supernova? As most stars age, they expand. They change their fusion process. The sun is doing a fusion transmutation every second of hydrogen to helium. But in these stars, they start to try to fuse heavier metals. So this type 2 supernova is the more common one. It's one in which the star grows, it expands, its fusion you know, kind of gets off kind of out of whack. And then keeping it simple, it's like someone would have basically said enough like a heart attack. And the star, when it has that change, in a trillionth of a second, it would explode. So this is that type of a supernova, distant 21 million light years away. That's incredible. So if you go back in the space-time continuum, it's amazing. But a supernova type 1A would be a little different. It's where this tiny neutron star would actually have the ability to pull material. Let's say you had two of these stars, like you put your left hand and right hand. And let's say you had an orange and a grapefruit or a lemon and a grapefruit, your choice. The smaller of the two objects is the thing that's pulling material in and when that material, because this particular little star gets greedy, it wants to eat more than it can, you know, it's got a bigger belly than it can eat. And what happens is something strange happens on that particular surface of the star where it all of a sudden just sucks in all the energy and it blows. But what's interesting about this is people who have larger telescopes, the moon, unfortunately, is going to interfere. But when the moon is not out, there are people that are imaging this with, you know, maybe a moderate size meeting a six-inch or more size telescope. And just to say that you saw it is quite, a, quite interesting because if this were to happen closer to our solar system, now this comes the practical part of the explanation. The brightest supernova that we think we've had, at least in modern recorded history, was back around April or May of 1006 AD. And this star that exploded was only 7,500 light years away, still far. But Frank, it was seen in a southern constellation called Lupus. So the Southern Hemisphere got to see it better, some of the Northern Hemisphere. But right here in Arizona, there's actually some credible evidence to say that some of these petroglyphs that are in the rocks depict this bright, brightening object, and they you know, painted it on the rock to keep it simple. But the problematic thing with that, at 7,500 light years, it actually bathed the Earth in gamma rays. Now, that's only 7,500 light years away. The 121 million light years doesn't have an effect on us. But let's hope and pray, heavy emphasis on pray, that nearer stars, like that of Betelgeuse, 550 light years away, Antares, 
about the same distance. If indeed they do go supernova, and they will, who can predict the time and date? We don't know. You can't hold me responsible for that. I don't know. Nobody knows. But just imagine, that supernova was 20 times or 30 times brighter than Venus in the sky, almost like that of a half moon. And it glowed for years in the sky. So the significance of this supernova, 2023, you know, the one that we're talking about, IXF, that is uh, kind of a prelude to what might happen closer to our own sun. Do do we have any idea what the timetable would be for that? I mean, are we talking 1,000 years, 5,000 years, 10,000 years, 25,000 years? Do we have any idea? No, we really don't. We studied Betelgeuse from that 747, which is Sophia. And we used to fly on it a lot, and that whole big 100-inch telescope on board the plane. We would go up, and they would image that from the, t- from the aircraft. And you'd see this roundish disk almost. I mean, you can't really resolve a star that far away. But the latest estimate is about two years ago, this, the Betelgeuse started to dim in the sky. So in other words, even your eye would say, oh, well, it looks like it's dimming, so maybe it's going to collapse. But some of the brightest astronomers in the world, Dr. Guinan down at the University of Pennsylvania was like the lead scientist on this. He was saying that they detected it's a large outgassing of dark material coming out of the star. Is that a prelude to a supernova explosion? So the simple answer is this. Betelgeuse or similar stars like that, but Betelgeuse in particular, it could go supernova in a week. It could be 1,000 years. It could be 10,000 years. We don't know. But here's the point. If and when it happens... The entire world will be looking up saying, that is amazing, because you'd be able to see the bright object in daylight. Wow. Uh, a ton of people eager to chat with you. They're queuing up 800-848-9222. Still have two open lines if you want to jump on board. Let me begin with Joe in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Joe. Hey, how you doing, Frank? I'm good. Good morning, good. Joe. Hey, Dr. Sky. I really enjoy your stuff, you know, uh, you're very enlightened. Um, Yeah, I heard about a story maybe about a week ago uh, that some, uh, maybe it was the James Webb Telescope, uh, I'm assuming that a star in another galaxy was um, captured swallowing up a planet in that galaxy. Could that happen with our own star? I mean, with our own sun, rather? Probably not yet, but you're actually right. It was the James Webb telescopes, and they used a very simple description, that this particular star is gobbling up planets. Here's the dark side of this, Joe. When the sun does the same thing I was talking about, like with Betelgeuse, the sun has been running for four and a half billion years. That's pretty good, and it's supposed to go for another four and a half billion. No guarantee. But when it changes, the whole cycle of converting hydrogen to helium, it's going to use up all the hydrogen. It's going to start to expand. So the reference point here is that particular story, like we're talking about with James Webb, gobbling up planets. Sorry to say, Earth, our days are numbered. The sun would expand. It would eat up Mercury. It would eat up Venus. Bye-bye, Earth. And then probably expand even all the way out past Mars for some of these giant stars. But we're kind of probably positive, right, Frank, on the show? And Absolutely. Uh, doesn't happen. But, Joe, it's an excellent question, and its relevance is exactly the same thing. It would happen with the sun in the future. Thank you, Joe. Hey, one of the things that we have not spoken about in great detail, mm. and, and speaking of extinction, is the the threat or possible threat of AI. And just yesterday it came out sure. that leading experts are issuing a dire warning that essentially AI could lead to some sort of human extinction in some yes. form or another. And these are not 
crackpots. These are not drunk, um, you know, people with three teeth, um, you know, who haven't slept in a week. (laughs) These are very reputable computer scientists, industry leaders that Mm -hmm. are bioethicists and others that are warning about this sort of thing. I'm curious, where do you come down on the hopes and fears for artificial intelligence going forward? Well, the chat GPT that everybody out there knows, I mean, I was amazed. You know, I'm a beginner in the AI concept. But I was incredible. I put my own name in there, not to be a narcissist. I wanted to see if it was accurate. And as you know, everybody who's used it, you see this thing scrolling almost faster than the speed of light. Kidding. And all this information is coming out, some of which was totally inaccurate. And, you know, the problematic thing here is it can be a bonus. But if it's going to take jobs away from so many people, I'm not a big fan of that. But talking more in the relativistic side of what I think may happen in the future, and I, you know, I, I'm kind of not the only person who has this theory. These tic-tac objects that people are seeing, the Navy, these weight, strange cylindrical objects that are defying all the laws of physics, anti-gravity and everything, more than likely, I don't know, and don't think anybody knows unless the government's keeping this a super secret. I have no clue what this really is, but here's a theory on this, and it relates to the, it relies, you know, goes to the question that you're asking or proposing. What would happen if the extinction on the Earth happened, nuclear war, climate change, as people would say, asteroidal impact? When human beings started here, the early form of the hominid, they started in caves. Look at the movie like 2001, A Space Odyssey. So here's the point. Maybe the surviving humans went underground, and what ran the entire show was this whole AI concept. And it gets even more bizarre. What if AI melded biologically with the human species to do something that has totally never been done before. Einstein was always one who had some concerns about the validity of quantum physics because it didn't show in a mathematical formula to be something that's reality-wise. Well, it's not. So what if, Frank, we're opening our minds here, what if AI then melded with human species, like, you know, biologically, and the objects that we're seeing today, like those Tic Tacs, are not from deep out in space, But because AI may have the ability to do something called the transformation of the space-time continuum, in simple English, maybe it can actually transfer itself through time and move forward and pop up somewhere. But that object that you're seeing, let's say this tic-tac, as crazy as this sounds, could be what they call the sentient being. In other words, it's like a big heart or a, a lung or something floating through space that has intelligence. Interesting, but uh, not to alarm people. But hey, this is an early morning program, and it what are we doing? We're well, opening up our minds. well, exactly. I mean, and I'm sure you've seen the news of uh, yeah. Elon Musk moving mm-hmm. forward with his Neuralink technology, which has oh, now yeah. been approved for human trials, which uh, yeah, absolutely. it seems to be uh, very indicative of some possible future like the one that you're describing. All right. Right. 800- nefarious. I'm a little concerned about the dark side of that, of course. That's the answer. Oh, no. Same here. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Thomas is in Baltimore. Hello, Thomas. How you doing, guys? Hey, Great. good morning. How are you? Yes, uh, I was uh, heard a commercial on, uh, I had Paramount Plus on, something about the Voyager. Mm-hmm. Are they still getting information from the Voyager? It's that long gone. Thomas, you're absolutely correct. The Voyager 2 has been given like a three-year extension, and it's hard to believe that these spacecraft, Voyager 1 and 2, which were launched in 1977, Voyager 1 and 2 are still being able to be operated from ground control. And it's wow, very that's crazy. Isn't that amazing? And it takes for, yeah. I'm not the exact number, but it takes for Voyager 2 
I think we're talking about 12 hours. So if you were sitting in front of the controls there, Thomas, and you said, turn camera left, you know, keeping it simple, that signal, just to cut the command, would be 12 hours. Voyager 1 is actually farther out. It would take like what? How far out are they? Well, you're talking. Yes, I do. You're talking about 14 billion miles away from the sun, but they're going in two opposite directions. So the farthest one out there is Voyager 1. Still operating, and it's interesting, Frank. I'm going to try to get an interview, and I don't know if you've done this, with the Voyager team. It's like a small little office in a small little part of one of the space labs, and they still have people that are working that. But you know where the signal comes from? It's interesting. Out in California, there's this big, I think it's like 230-foot diameter, big antenna, and you've seen it in a lot of movies. It's called the Goldstone Antenna, hmm. and that is this primary antenna that they beam signals. That's just amazing. It blows my mind. Thomas, you're right. And that is that is incredible. Great question, Thomas. All right, we're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in a moment. If you have questions, we'll try and get to as many of them as we can here. Three open lines at 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. On the left stands Richie Ballins. Tommy D singing about three stars. Not necessarily the celestial variety, but uh, the stars that he's singing about were such big stars that they may as well have been. And we are talking about the stars, the moon, anything that involves the sky or space with Dr. Sky, a.k.a. Steve Cates. If you enjoy the content of this hour, The Infinite Side of Midnight, every two weeks... You're going to want to check out the Dr. Sky Experience. There's great commentary on there. There's also some really interesting interviews that uh, you could check out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. That's redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And it's funny. I was walking with my son just uh, a couple of days ago, and he got a look at the moon as oh, it was wow. sort of uh, p- starting to peak his way up. And there's this one video that he likes that has the moon in it. So he knew that it was the moon. And I'm hoping that uh, sooner rather than later that he'll uh, ask for a telescope as a gift so that I can get a lot of use out of it as uh, as well. Uh, but uh, <laughs> well, That's great. Carmine starting young. Absolutely. That. No doubt about it. All right. Um, one of the questions that people that people ask about 
from time to time, and I think somebody brought this up two weeks ago, was about how uh, astronauts eat. Well, maybe even a more important question is how folks in space go to the bathroom. Now, people that train for this kind of thing for years, they probably have all sorts of protocols and all sorts of special ways of dealing with this sort of thing. But what about these space tourists that are paying quarter of a million, $300,000 for the opportunity to go to space for a bit? What are we learning about how they are going to be able to use the uh, bathroom, Dr. Sky? Well, you have to have some very careful procedures. In other words, if it's not written on the upper side of the toilet seat lid, you really need to pay attention and be trained. Now, it sounds like a comical story here, and there's actually some interesting history on this. All the way into the Apollo era, we find out that Apollo 10 had a near-in-space incident with, and I have to be very careful how I say this, but I'll say it honestly, they were on board the spacecraft in Apollo 10. And by the way, that's the mission that came just before 11, you know. But it had the, the lunar module descended to about 50,000 feet above the surface. And then all of a sudden they had to come back just to test the descent motors. Now, isn't that kind of a sad event? You're that close, but you can't get down to the surface of the moon. But what they had on the way to the moon is a serious incident where the commander actually called for a tissue immediately because, and in his words, and I quote, there is a turd floating about the <laughs> spacecraft, end quote. Now, we kept it family-friendly, but the truth of the matter is we've learned the hard way on this. Now, can you imagine, and everybody out there can, in the Apollo days, sitting in those confined you know, couches, you could barely get up, and if you had to put your spacesuit on, it was very cramped. But now on the International Space Station, trust me, I haven't been there but talking to people who have, like Dr. Peggy Whitson, is, new, is on this new Axon mission. It's a private mission. And she, of course, was one of the first commander, first female commander, I should say, of the ISS. She's been up in space over 600 days. But now, why do I mention that? Because space tourists may not have all that detailed training. So the toilet is very complicated. It's over a million dollars. Now, that's more than what you'd find at a Home Depot, right? Mm. That's incredible. So you have to get good suction as you sit. And then the rest I'll leave up to your imagination because it has a whole different dynamic of this. But maybe that's a micro dirty jobs kind of story that uh, he would uh, report on. I love it. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Sherry is in the Bronx. Hello, Sherry. Hi. Okay. Good Thank you both. Anyway, in case there's not enough to worry about, uh, all of the things being equal, I've noticed in at least the last year the sun definitely looks a lot brighter. Mm -hmm. So all I can find uh, is other folks who notice it say, according to something called geoengineeringwatch.org, hmm. the geoengineering that establishment's been doing is reduce the ozone layer so the sun is brighter and hotter to us. Uh, well, so well, what do you think? Well, Sherry, great, great comment and great question. You know, I don't have any real factual information on whether that whole thing is caused by a depletion of ozone. But we can tell you that the sun's brilliance, thank goodness, is fairly constant. But the problematic thing with the sun is it does change. Like if you measured a square area, let's say a square foot or a square meter, over the course of a year, we're going to see a different amount of energy. Ask the solar people who do the solar panels. But to my knowledge, there's no real change that we can tell that the sun's you know, output has changed by the sun itself. But maybe, you're right, maybe the in incidence of particles, like from this supervolcano that we'll talk about later, may be either added or to help diminish some of the sunlight. Volcanic dust can do that. 
But that's a whole nother story. Great comment. Great question, Sherry. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Hi, Dr. Sky. Hi, Frank. Uh, I just want to ask you about some of these new telescopes being developed. I know there's a Magellan telescope that's being built in Chile. Yes. And I think there's the Nancy Grace Roman uh, telescope that's going to be a space telescope. And if you could just comment maybe on, on the capabilities of both of these sure. as opposed to you know, the current telescopes, the Hubble and the James Webb. Absolutely. Remember, let's go over a little primer on this and appreciate it, Don. As we look at this whole thing with Hubble, let's talk about its mirror. It's like 94 inches in diameter, pretty big by space standards. Look at James Webb, 21 foot in diameter surface with a whole bunch of little mirrors, these little hexagon mirrors. Let's go to ground-based telescopes. If you look in Chile, and by the way, folks, and by the way, Don, the most driest place on Earth, if you really want to set up an observatory, Go to the Atacama Desert in Chile, because if you look at weather, uh, you know, satellite images, you'll see maybe clouds off the coast in the Pacific, but this high-pressure dome is why they do it. They're building another telescope there, Don, which is actually called the Extremely Large Telescope. What a name, huh? This looks like it'll be a 150-foot in diameter ground-based telescope. You may wonder, why build a telescope that big when you can actually do it in a maybe more compact way in space? But that's one of the big, the big things. Then there's the Vera Rubin telescope that's really just like this giant camera with amazing megapixels. So the ground-based telescopes are going to get larger. Their purpose is to see you know, galaxies and photograph things that are way out in space. But I'm going to still bet, and I wonder what you think, Don. I still think the James Webb has the edge because it's a million miles away from us, and it still has the advantage over everything. What what, what say you in closing? And uh, well, yeah, I lowered uh, Don there. Go ahead, Don. Okay. You could respond. Uh, well, Go ahead. I would just think that anything in, in space, you know, there's a, a greater clarity. Um, the only thing mm-hmm. in space, though, I think the James Webb was hit by some micrometeorites. Yes. So there's a danger there. Yes. But, um, you know, it functions, it's functioning fine. Um, but that's one thing you're not going to, you know, have on Earth, you know, any, any sure. danger of being hit by, by flying objects. Try. And there's all different research. I mean, the answer in the short amount of time we have here, whether the ELT, and I hope, hope I'm right, 130 to 150 foot in diameter, that's a massive telescope. And the largest one that I've had the honor of being able to go to is the Discovery Channel Telescope, uh, folks, out here in Arizona deep in the dark of Arizona night skies in a place called Happy Jack. And it's so hard to find, guys, because we're driving along the road, and if you miss the mailbox, you've got to go way up this dirt road. It's a 175-inch telescope, a seven-story building. And guess what? Don and Frank and everybody listening, you don't look through the thing like a telescope. It's got this giant photo camera, like a pixel camera, and you go down in the control room, and I was amazed. In just seconds, we're getting a galaxy that looks like Anything you'd see, like the Hubble telescope, in just seconds. That's how big and powerful these monster telescopes are. Steve, uh, one of the things that we heard about uh, a great deal, maybe about a year or so ago, was uh, a submarine volcano, uh, which I have to tell you I was totally unfamiliar with, called Hunga Tonga. Explain (laughs) to folks, one, what a submarine volcano is, and um, what is the latest on Hunga Tonga? Well, back on January 15th of 2022, Frank, this amazing submarine volcano, what it is, it's as if a submarine, if you had these maps, you know, and obviously submarines are not looking out the front window like the, you know, voyage to the bottom of the sea sea view. They don't have that. They have to use sonar. But under the ocean, we've mapped. So it would be basically an underwater mountain. And in this case, it happened to be quite active. So on that date, 
people in that part of the South Pacific, more interestingly enough, God bless the people there, because if you were out in the ocean, you wouldn't be here to talk about it. What happened is space satellites, weather satellites, imaged this massive explosion, equivalent, get a load of this, to 15 megatons as if it was a nuclear explosion. What was so powerful about it is that it lasted, this, not the explosion, there were like little explosions, like a Mount St. Helens, you know, with a little rumbling, and then all of a sudden the big boom. What happened is it shot debris over 36 miles up into the atmosphere, and it produced, this is what's amazing about this, it produced the fastest atmospheric waves ever detected. It circled the planet six times, and it put more water, not only are the biggest polluters, you know, people say carbon dioxide from jets and such, of course, nobody wantingly wants to be a polluter, not that I know, but volcanoes are still your biggest comfort in history. Get a load of this. It allegedly put out more water in any type of a volcanic explosion that's been measured. It had enough water to fill 58,000 swimming pools for water content, and it also sent pressure waves around the Earth, like that of what we get when we get a, well, almost synonymous to like a small CME from the sun. So that's bizarre. And guess what? If you look, folks, into the sky at sunset, depending on where you live, try the clearest night in these beautiful pre-summer evenings. Frank, you've seen it. I'm sure everybody has. You see these mm -hmm. beautiful pinks and purples. A lot of that is still debris in the stratosphere from the Honga Tonga explosion. Now, that's amazing in closing because you do not normally see those type of explosions. And flying back from Oregon and Portland, you get a ringside seat of Mount Hood. We saw the caldera of Mount St. Helens, Mount Adams, and all the way up, if you look north, you could see Mount Rainier. Many of these are still, quote, active volcano, cap you know, capable mountains. But the one under the ocean, that's bizarre. Mm. Uh, that's for sure. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, hey, Steve. Uh, Good morning. I have two questions, yeah. Yeah, uh, sure, Joe. First, uh, first, I was, uh, you know, if you look at some of these probes uh, mm -hmm. that can't actually hit on the surface of some of these planets, like, say, maybe a Mercury, right. uh, What? What? how much of that is something from space bouncing off the planet versus something emitting from the planets uh, in the case of the probes. And then my other question would be, sure. you just mentioned space satellites. Uh, there was an ocean liner that got really rocked off South Carolina by high waves a day or yeah. so ago. Don't they have space satellites that help them avoid that? Or, and shouldn't they avoid that, you know, given some of the customers might get really disturbed by that? Sure. Well, Joe, I'll answer your first question or, or comment. If you look at the ocean, obviously these big ships, I mean, look at them, Frank. They're incredible, Joe. I mean, I've been on one cruise ship in my life, and it was nothing like these monster ships. I think Celebrity has the edge in that whole series. But they have some really sophisticated capabilities, including satellites. So I would imagine they could steer away from storms. That's obvious. But you have all these different ripples in the ocean that could happen. What if there was a landslide in the ocean? You have to be, well, what can you really do about that? I mean, nothing. But going back to your first comment or question about probes, you know, so many of these spacecraft are imaging these planets, as we know, and they do a great job of it. But more than likely, so many of these Earth-like, or we call them terrestrial planets, like Mercury, there's not a lot of activity going on, that coming, you know, material coming off the planet. It's pretty much, you know, dormant. Venus is another story. Mars obviously has been active in the past. But the spacecraft capability today is just so much better, obviously, than it was, 
you know, even 20 years ago. But it's all about the resolution of the cameras. And again, in closing, I think these cruise ships, they do have some mighty, you know, sophisticated electronics, uh, imaging, radar capabilities, and hopefully they can avoid, avoid the big tsunamis if there's anything coming. When we return, we're going to talk with Dr. Sky about what you yourself can see in the night sky in the month of June. We'll also continue with your questions in a moment at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is the infinite side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The sun rays! Uh, Singing about the sun there and their fondness for it. A fellow that knows about the sun, the moon, all the stars, and all the celestial bodies is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If you're interested in what we're talking about or you just like the sound of his voice, you can uh, go ahead and uh, check out his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience. You can go to Red Apple podcastnetwork.com. He's also a regular contributor to the Cats Roundtable on Sunday mornings. Had a great interview there this uh, this past Sunday. Uh, S- Steve, now that it's June, a lot of people are going to have a little bit of a different schedule. Some people may be teachers, although I know may, they may be still working towards the end of June. But a lot of people may enjoy more daylight in the day than they certainly do in, say, November or September. Mm-hmm. And it may change their stargazing experiences. The weather might be a little nicer. They stay outside a little later than they normally would. What should they be looking for in the night sky uh, with the naked eye or with the aid of some binoculars or a telescope? Well, Frank, we begin with the romance of the sky. And this is a beautiful one. As we see the next full moon, which occurs for people who are listening all over, on the evening of June the 3rd, you can see this actually on the 2nd, but try the 3rd. If you have clear skies, it's the beauty of the full strawberry moon. Now, it also has many other names. Some call it the full honeymoon, which is interesting because of the color of honey. But what's fascinating about this particular moon is that once it glides into the constellation Scorpius in the zodiac, if you have clear skies, try this. With the naked eye, just look a few degrees to the right of the edge of the right edge of the moon. You'll be looking at the heart star, the brightest star in Scorpius called Antares. And if you go back to the literal translation, it means rival of Mars because of its color. That's about 550 light years away. It's also one of those Betelgeuse-type stars, so maybe one day it won't be around. But that's beautiful. But if you're really into, say, a pair of binoculars, here's some really things, interesting things I hope people try. As you move into the evening of the second, look in the northwest sky. You'll see the brilliant planet Venus. That's the you know, benchmark for the sky. Just to the left by a few degrees, and you'll have to look on a star chart, you'll see the planet Mars. But it glides through a star cluster called the Beehive Star Cluster. This is in Cancer the Crab, so this is a binocular view. You'll see red little Mars, you know, about 190 million miles away. 
right now, and you'll see that star cluster, which is really far away in light years. Then we find out that the planet Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, the one that we see that's so bright in the evening in the northwest sky, it reaches something called dichotomy, meaning it's a half-moon shape when you look at it. And that's cool because it's going to start getting more like a crescent. It'll start getting more brilliant. And Venus reaches its greatest elongation in the western sky by about the 4th, when it's about 45 to 47 degrees away from the sun, the farthest it can get. It's just a beautiful sight. And we could go on and on as we race toward the solstice on the 21st in northern latitudes, where this radio show, I'm sure, is beaming very proudly and very Mm -hmm. strong. You're seeing sunsets that are literally into like 10 or 11 p.m. Even later, as you get up to the Arctic Circle, you're going to have the sun in the sky, what, all all the time north of that for the next few months. But it's a great time, and I, I say it real quickly here. I know time is of the essence. If you have a chance to see in a dark location, many of us are deprived by this. We talk about both. People can see many things even in the city. That's, that's also true. But if you have a chance on a vacation, as you alluded to, or getting away from town, pick a night around the dark of the moon or the new moon, and that's the 18th of this month of June coming up. Why? If you look in wherever you're at, campsite or someplace away from lights, look in the southern sky by around 11 to 12, around midnight. You're looking at the core of the galaxy, Frank, in Sagittarius. This is a beautiful thing. It looks like thunderclouds. They're true star clouds. And remember, straight in that direction is the core of the Milky Way, 27,000 light years away from your eye. Wow, uh, that is uh, certainly impressive to ponder. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, good morning, Frank. Good morning, Doctor. How you doing good morning. today? I'm doing well, sir. Thank you for calling. Great, great. I got a question. I was watching the uh, Memorial Day uh, uh, tribute on uh, TV, and they added the Space Force to the other five uh, military branches. Yes. I was wondering, could you walk into a, a a recruiter and, and join the Space Force like you would the Army or, or the Navy? And if you did, what kind of opportunities are there for to, for advancement? And uh, are they are they are they is it a serious branch of service? Or is I I mean the uniforms are like right out of Star Trek. Oh no, they are serious. I don't know the answer to that. I'm always honest here, but I imagine that's something for all the folks out there that are of the age that they could go into the military. You know, I'm an Army veteran, but proud to talk about the Space Force. Yes. And it's very interesting. I was watching, uh, Frank and Neil, on television, a celebration that was happening in San Francisco. And they p- were playing the actual theme songs from, you know, the, of each of right, the branches. all the branches, sure. Yeah, and they said that we're going to add the Space Force uh, theme. But I couldn't, I, I couldn't actually pick it out from there. I'm going to do my homework, but Neil, I'm not sure. But It's a great question. Anybody who's listening who wants to do that, I think, what, Neil? The best answer is go down and ask, because... They have a different role, obviously. You know, they're prepared. Let's be really honest here, folks, always. They're prepared for contingencies that may take military activity deep into space. But it's not always about war. It's about also about great research that they do. Neil, that's something. You got me puzzled. And uh, I'm going to check this one out. With, uh, we, will, we will research it and uh, get because it is a good question. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi. Good morning, Frank. Good yep. morning, Dr. Sky. Good morning, sir. Uh, How are you? One of my tra- Oh, pretty good, thanks. When I was traveling through the South, we used to work building some Navy sonar, but we were traveling across the South to go to a job site. We went to the Space Institute of America, oh. and the engineer there had built uh, built like a five-foot-long uh, type of, I guess, a gun that he could fire a composite material out. 
of it. We could, he shot it in the same room with me sitting there, went through like four telephone, three to four telephone books. Wow. But his claim to fame was like the projectile could go faster than the speed of sound. Do, yes. Do they have things? If they, this is 30 years ago, so do they have things like that now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I talk about this from my military friends, that they have, like, on the tanks, they have these sable rounds, which means that there's, like, a dart. Well, it's a pretty heavy dart. It's made out of, you know, titanium or, in the real case, depleted uranium. And it looks like a literal dart. But the thing, I had one as a dummy one. But they fire it out of a smoothbore, you know, uh, you know the, the barrel of a tank, let's say, in Abrams. And it comes out at such great velocity that it doesn't have an explosive charge on it. It's coming so fast, it's kinetic. So then it would hit, let's say, the enemy tank or the target. Imagine how thick the, the hull of the tank is. It literally penetrates that, and inside an incendiary device, which is just like a horrible way to die if you're going to be on the bad side. But they have, they have weapons like this, kinetic weapons. I've talked about the theoretical one in space that nobody's proven. You say this. kinetic is it, is it something, is that non-gunpowder? Right. Is In other it words, it, it basically could be just a solid... Right. It could be like a solid piece of metal with no explosive charge. It's just flying so fast, going at incredible speed, that when it hits, it's just using its energy and kinetic energy to hit and cause the damage. But the strangest one, Frank and, and, and Paul, is the story about something, a spacecraft that is orbiting the Earth, we think, U.S., called Rods from God. Now, what would that be? They're like larger versions of what I just talked about, that in case you needed to take out some kind of a facility as a last-ditch uh, you know, platform, you could fire these amazing rods from space that are not explosive charges, but like I said before, kinetic charges made out of some extremely hard metallic stuff and even depleted uranium. But Frank and Paul, I don't have anybody that I can talk to that can prove that. Maybe that's a big secret here. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Ed is on Long Island. Hello, Ed. Yes, hi. How you doing? Ed, good. Good morning. Scott, um, hi. Uh, I'm an old um, uh, engineering student. Uh, I graduated out in Stony, Stony Brook, Long Island, um, uh, about 1983. Uh, I had a quick question. Um, I had a uh, astro- uh, astronomy class, <clears throat> and one of my pre- professors said something I never forget. And he said, you know, most of the sky that we see here from Earth is actually what he called a prehistoric sky. Mm-hmm. He said, because everything is so far away, we don't really know for sure what's still there and what's not there. Yes. Well, what's your thoughts on that? What's Absolutely. You, he said it right, and yeah. I'll say it in my worry, and I think you'll like this, mm-hmm. Ed. The entire okay. sky is a time machine. So when you right. look, remember, the light from the sun takes eight and a half minutes to get here. But you look at right. stars, let's say, four light years. It took four light years to travel. Mm-hmm. You look at that supernova that I'm talking about, 21 million light years. And then the billions of light years. Remember, the whole universe supposedly started, what, 13 and a half or more billion years ago. So when you look right. at the night sky, you're so right, and your friend is right. You're looking at something that's right at the second, like you snap your finger, but everything mm-hmm. is changing. And those things that you're looking at, who knows? Maybe they're not there. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it just uh, something came back to me from 40 years ago. I just uh, hey, you're right on, my friend. Spot on. Absolutely. Thank you, Ed. Let me try and squeeze in at least one more call here. Uh, Joe is in – well, actually, John's been holding a while. John is in Queens. Hello, John. Good morning, John. All right. Well, John's not there, so we will go to Joe. Hello, Joe in New Jersey. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, good morning, uh, Joe. 
in my in my younger days, I worked for a little rocket company called Reaction Motors, was taken over by Thiokol Chemical. Absolutely. And I, uh... Did I lose you, Joe? All right. Well, then that's Robert in Maryland's lucky day. Hello, Robert. <laughs> uh, real quick. Yeah, I had a Professor James Aguirre speak to our engineering alumni board. I don't know if that was the guy studying Betelgeuse. He had two experiments, South Africa array and the stratospheric balloon to look through the gas clouds, the distant galaxies. My question was resolution of uh, individual stars far out in galaxies. How far could you uh, go to see the individual stars with the web? Very interesting. I'm not sure of the quite answer to this, but here's here's the best speculation. From the ground, Betelgeuse was one of the first stars ever resolved to see a diameter, and that was through the thick of the Earth's atmosphere. To be honest with everybody, I'm not sure what the limiting resolution of that is, and that's another homework question that we should go work on, because we measure this in tiny, there would be maybe 10 thousandths of a second of arc, meaning we're taking a ruler. So every degree has 60 minutes of resolution, and every minute has 60 seconds, meaning smaller separations. Now we're talking, Robert, about tiny, infinitesimal diameters, stars because they're so far. It's hard to even identify a disk. So even with James Webb, I'm not sure what that limiting resolution is, but it's got to be the best that we've got. And I think you and I, Frank, will have to uh, follow up, at least me, follow up on that. Before we get out of here, I do want to ask you about China. Their space program continues to make a great deal of news. And it looks like they are planning to, the Chinese, go to the moon by 2030. We've heard a lot about Artemis and the American attempts to go back to the moon do you think China's going to be able to do this, send astronauts to the moon in seven years? I mean, that strikes me as a pretty ambitious goal, but they've yes. clearly been investing a great deal into the space program. Well, absolutely, Frank. Just look at the track record. I used the icon of all icons for, for the China space program. They did in one fell swoop what America couldn't do and took a long time. What did they do? They sent a mission to Mars, which is actually a spacecraft. They sent a descent module, which soft landed on the surface, and out of it come the Zhurong space little rover. We never did that in all one fell swoop. We had to go to build up technology over time. So they're going back to the moon. I would think, because and I have to say this, you know, honestly, here, I think they're so very disciplined in what they do, very focused, because they're not all over the page. I mean, we have so many projects, and so, you know, again, all the NASA budget, if you think about it, maybe what, eighteen billion dollars. That's a tiny dot sure. compared to what big programs are. But in China, they're really focused on this. So the answer is simply, I think they might even beat us to the surface of the moon as a surprise. But let's hope it's all in peace for all mankind. Absolutely. The original astronaut. Absolutely. Uh, and it's a good thing we have got that space force in case things go the other way. Steve uh, Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Check out the Dr. Sky experience. Hear it at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, I'll see you in two weeks. Appreciate the opportunity. And uh, it's good to be with you. It's my pleasure. For the rest of you, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. 
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 